Hey kids, this is CJ Ramon of the world famous Ramones, and you'll listen to Music the Lifeblood. Sitting around with time to kill. Hey folks, Big Jake here just to take a minute and remind you that Music the Lifeblood is not a politically correct podcast. So the following episode might have some colorful commentary on the subjects at hand. Listener discretion is advised. Sitting around with time to kill. If we don't do it, then no one will. Our eyes are cold, our thoughts are low. Fifteen minutes till we lose control. You are now listening to... Music, the lifeblood. Generation behind, going nowhere's just fine. Maybe tonight's the night we die. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Music, the Lifeblood. I am your very humble host, Dustin. We've got an extra, ultra, mega special edition of Music, the Lifeblood. Why? Because C.J. Ramon. That's why. For those of you that don't know, CJ played bass for the Ramones from 1989 to 1996, filling the position left vacant by D.D. Ramone. CJ ended up playing on and contributing to albums like Mondo Bizarro, my personal favorite, and Adios Amigos. After the Ramones disbanded in 1996, CJ has went on to a very successful solo career, and we were able to catch up with him to talk about his album, Last Chance to Dance, if you haven't heard it go check that thing out it is an absolute pop punk masterpiece and on a personal note this was one of those bucket list items for me because cj was my guy in the ramones growing up he has had such a huge impact on me as a music fan so i want to thank him for his candor and his time but before we get into that i just want to take a second remind everyone that music the lifeblood is available on facebook instagram tumblr twitter we also have a youtube channel where i host music the lifeblood's vinyl thursday you can check out my record collection we do album reviews and interviews also on youtube is vinyl thursday's sister show music the lifeblood's conversations from the pit co-hosted by myself and music the lifeblood's own third man in the field mr john carter all right now that's out of the way let's get on to this conversation that we had with cj ramon <laughs> on the phone i am joined with cj ramon cj how are you all right doing okay sitting here in the snowy cold new york <laughs> awesome okay so new record out cj Last chance to dance. What's it like being punk rock and almost fifty years old at this point? Um, I, I used to be of the opinion that um, punk rock and rock and roll was was you know for young angry kids and that's who it should be left to and and that's why I felt like the Ramones kind of bowed out at a a good time period and whatnot. But you know the old the older I got, the the more I realized I'm really no less a punk now than I was when I was younger. Um, for some of the uh, more, I guess, shallow reasons, I'm not. I don't drink and party quite as much as I used to. I sure. don't go to as many shows as I used to. But you, you, the, the one thing to me that that makes a punk a punk is that you do things your own way. You do it your way how, how you want to. You don't necessarily go with the flow or or um or, or ride the same wave that everybody else rides you kind of do it your own way and and i realize i'm probably more of a punk now 
than I was when I was a kid because of that, seeing it in, in that light. Um, you know, it's less about the uniform and the haircut and, 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 uh, and, uh, the partying and stuff. I'm more about, you know, really doing things my own way. And that's, uh, there's a certain type of, uh, <laughs> as corny as it sounds, there's a certain type of freedom that comes along with that when you stop worrying about some of the, uh, the surface issues and, and, and you're really more focused on, uh, I'm at the root of things that uh, that that really makes things a lot more fun for you and uh, and and just I don't know. Like I said, you know, I, I think I'm I'm probably more of a punk now, even though I have three kids and live in suburbia and raise chickens and have a garden and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm probably more of a punk now than I was when I was, you know, hanging out and smoking weed and drinking beers and going to shows and, and, and whatnot, you know, back then I was just kind of following along with the crowd. And if it was the punk rock crowd, I was still following the crowd. And now I feel like I'm really not following any crowd. I'm kind of marching on my own. And that's, uh, the, it, that feels good. <clears throat> if you go back to, if you, if you look at our side of the pond, the American version of punk rock, um, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, ground zeroes. The original? Yeah. Yeah. The original punk rock, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, the, the ground zero, the epicenter tends to be, everyone looks at it as New York 1974. Um, so we have yeah. punk rock approaching middle age at this point. Yeah. To me, pop punk has always been associated with, uh, youth. You know, whether it's a yeah. band, whether it's a band like the Ramones or Screeching Weasel or, you know, the Teen Idols, whatever. That tends yep. to be something that's centered around youth and being young. So do you yeah. think, do you think at this point, kind of in, in your history and your life experience, does punk rock have the wherewithal to age the right kind of way? You know, we have, we have good examples with, you know, bands like Bad Religion, um, and even what you're doing now that it's doable. But do you think on a grand scale, punk rock is going to age the way that you would like to see it age? You know, it, it's funny. Punk rock is, has like a, it turns out a very long half-life it's uh and and partially we owe that to the the record companies who collectively made a decision not to support punk rock after the whole um sex pistols debacle thing there sure um uh you know the record company said hey we're not going to uh we're not going to back punk rock we're going to start our own type of music here based on punk rock called new wave and that's where you got all the, uh, you know, that's where that whole, that, it was like, you know, punk rock light thing. Um, <laughs> uh, it was, you know, it, it, it's, that actually helped punk rock because by forcing punk rock to live and exist in the underground, it made the youth identify with it even more, even, you know, hold on to it even more tightly. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, guys like Brett Gerwitz, um, you know, grew up and finally, you know, some of the uh, punks from the old days were old enough to be in positions like that where they could start their own record companies and they could start their own merchandise companies. That punk rock really grew into what it is and what it has, be, you know, what it has had become all through the 90s and into the 2000s. Um, now it's, it's on a, a lower point, I would say, on a lower point in its cycle. The scene has condensed a little bit more and shrunk, but it's still as 
tight and as vibrant as it was, you know, early on, I think, you know, I, I, it, the, it's a really odd thing to me. Punk rock never belonged at big festivals in stadiums. You know, it's the same thing with rock and roll never belonged on those big stages, never meant for those big stages. Mm. You know, realistically it was, you know, more for the outcasts, more for the, the, the kids who didn't fit in. It belongs in small, sweaty clubs, you know, anywhere from 50 to, to 500 kids. To me, that's a real punk rock show. When you go into a club and it's super packed and sweaty and hot and you can't help but pogo because everyone else around you is pogoing <laughs> and you're packed so tightly together, you're just getting carried up and down, that's a punk rock show. That, to me, is like the spirit, the real roots of punk rock. Um, but... The, like I said, you know, because it was forced on the ground and then had this explosion, you know, in the nineties and through the two thousands, and now it's contracted and it's back down into more manageable sized places. And even though, you know, you have festivals where they have punk rock and everything else, I like it going back to that. I like it going back to the smaller venues. My sweet spot is those rooms that are 50 people to 500 people. I love playing. We just came back from, uh, Australia, we did uh, anywhere from 125 to you know 250 kids a night. I think we had one show that was uh, a little bit less than that in Hobart, Tasmania, but it was a, uh, a holiday or something like that. Um, but those are the perfect shows. I love those shows. I love them. They're great. It's hard to pay my guys. <laughs> it's hard to make a living <laughs> doing those types of shows, but. I mean, for me, you know, for my money, that is a real punk rock show. You go to that show, you're gonna, you're gonna feel every note played. You're gonna be part of the show. You're gonna be caught up in it. There's no way around it. It's hard to get caught up in the show when you're there with, you know, ten thousand other people, right. twelve thousand other people. Yeah, you know I mean, you're so far away from the stage. You're not. There's nothing coming off the stage that you really fit. And this is my own personal opinion. I know there's people out there that feel like the bigger the better and, and everything else. But I, where I come from, from my experiences, those have always been the best shows that I've been to. But, but sorry, I keep drifting off the point here. But the, um, but the fact of the matter is, is that um, punk rock has only gone through its aging and, and, and getting old and everything else. And it's kind of going back. It's kind of made a turn back to kind of towards its roots which I really dig. And the cool thing is, is you have bands like, you know, the Mean Jeans and Teenage Bottle Rocket and, you know, all the Ramones core bands, the Queers and, and the Riverdales and all, all these different bands that have kind of carried on, the, carried on the sound and the tradition and, and are, are, you know, a couple of probably a second generation into their own crowds. Right. And the more it contracts, the better the scene gets, the tighter the scene gets, the better the bands are, too. That's a, that's another neat thing about the scene contracting. The smaller the scene gets, the more the the tighter the 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 um the the scene gets, the the better the bands get. That's just a fact, you know. It's it, always a new, you know, burgeoning music scene. Always, you know, flowers its best bands way early in in infancy of the scene. You know what I mean? Why That's do you, when why, you get your why, best bands out of it? Why do you think that is? It, it, it takes a, a long period of time of stagnation and everything else 
this is how good this is i mean from sitting back at 50 years old seeing entire genres of music coming to at this point i i i i've been able to witness the birth life and death of multiple scenes and and for me what it is is a style of music will come up it'll start on the underground and and develop into a really neat little scene it, it'll it, there's always a group of a couple of bands that that rise to the top and carry the scene it then kind of makes its way to the commercial market where it starts you know the, it goes from the little tiny clubs to the slightly bigger clubs to the theaters by the time these bands get big enough that they're playing in stadiums and headlining festivals and everything else, the scene explodes. It becomes really big. And then all of a sudden it becomes mainstream. Mm -hmm. And then all these kids who get on board, they're really just, you know, like the kids that, you know, get on board with whatever music popular at that, at that moment. So that it becomes this watering down of the scene. And then all these other bands that are like watered down versions of those great original bands, they start to become the popular ones. And then it gets super watered down. And then all of a sudden you start hearing, hearing that type of music on TV commercials and people like actors and actresses start wearing those band shirts and stuff. And at that point, this a vacuum is created for the next cool underground scene. But it takes a couple of years of there not being anything valuable, anything real, anything good, anything that the kids who are looking for something real to hold on to. It takes a couple of years of that vacuum just sucking the life out of everybody for there to be a, a new group of kids who are pissed off enough and and motivated enough to to that they do something that rebels against everything else so that's the beautiful thing about punk rock as long as you have pissed off alienated hormonally charged teenage <laughs> kids you're always going to have punk rock it's always going to be there and it's going to take a couple of generations to come around but it's always going to be there. And that's the beauty of punk is that it, it, it really speaks to, like you were just saying before, you made the statement, it, it, it speaks to the youth. It speaks to the youth. It comes from the youth. That's why. <laughs> that's exactly why. Right. So right now, there is a definitely, a, a, you know, punk rock is contracting. <laughs> I'm not going to mention any names, but... <laughs> You know, there have been bands that I that I've tried to kind of reach out to to get um to get some you know get on on a bill with them right. just so I can reintroduce myself and get my record out there again and let people know hey I'm back and uh you know the 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 responses from from the management companies and and whatnot have been like you know we don't want anything to do with punk rock hmm. like they, they're like running away from punk rock. And at first I was kind of insulted and took that personally, but then I thought about it and I was like, awesome. That's where I like to be. That's where I want to be. I don't want, I don't want to necessarily be, you know, playing at, you know, warming up for somebody at Madison Square Garden. I don't necessarily want to be doing big rooms or anything like that. I just wanted to get out with bands that I like or grew up liking or you know, guys from other bands that I've been friends with for a while and, and, and try to get in front of, of, um, some bigger audiences. Cause I think the music, what I do actually will appeal to, uh, to a bigger audience. Sure. But once I heard that response, I, I thought to myself, 
that's beautiful. <laughs> if they look at me and go, you're, you're, what you're doing is irrelevant now, I know I'm in the right spot. I know I'm in the right spot. I'm not, I never want to be, I never want to be on the David Letterman show. I never want to be uh, playing at Madison Square Garden. Never want to be doing that. Where I, where I want to be is playing to the next generation of kids that are going to come out with something really good, something that something from the roots of punk rock. Somewhere, somewhere out there, some pimply faced, pot smoking, pissed off kid who hates everything around him is going to come to one of my shows and go. That's what I want to do. That's what I've been looking for. That's that's what I want to be saying. That that that's the that's the crowd that I want to be in front of. That's who I want to reach. The Ramones music started a revolution once, well, actually more than once. But you know, the Ramones music has started a, a couple of musical revolutions. I'm really hoping that if I can stay out there and keep doing my stuff with some Ramones stuff in the set. I'll be able to kick something off. And that's not to say that, you know, yeah, I did it. I'm, uh, you know, I'm king of the hill or nothing like that. That's just because I want to see it go on. I, I want to see it keep going because realistically, <laughs> if you look at popular music now, man, it is, it has never been worse for kids. Never. All the Disney stuff and all, it's just brutal. It's br unbelievably brutal. It really is. It's, it, it, it's brutal, but it's the perfect time for this this type of music to inspire the next big thing, and that's that's what I'm hoping will happen. So, is there something is there something to be said for uh, you know websites like Bandcamp or you know Reverb Nation that sort of thing where it's um you know the way that you're the way that you make it sound it's almost you feel like you belong kind of in that underdog position. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. without a doubt. That's I, I live for that position. You know, even on my new record, I got a song on there called Grunt. Right. That is totally the the position that I feel comfortable comfortable in. I don't need to. I, I don't need the. I I don't need all the polish. I don't need all the you know the glamorous stuff. I I that's all fluff and bullshit to me. It really is. I I really. Even with the Hall of Fame thing, people are like, were you upset that you weren't included in the Hall of Fame thing? I was like, you show me any punk rocker who actually thinks that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a legitimate enterprise, and, and I will eat my shoes because <laughs> it is such a joke to even call it the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Some of the stuff they have in there is like so far from rock and roll so unbelievably ridiculously far from rock and roll. And it is so anti-punk rock. You know what I mean? How can you consider yourself punk once you're a part of the, the, the whole corporate framework thing? How, how are you a punk rocker? How are you punk? How is that punk? If you're, you've left it. You've left that behind once you become part of that. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. For Johnny and Joey, that was the end game of all end games was to be they wanted to be a big commercial success. That's absolutely what they wanted. But that was never what I, what I wanted. You know what I mean? I always thought that's what made the Ramones cool, was that they never got that. They never were, they never were you know, the cool in band. That's always what, you know, that's what drew me to them. Do you think, do you think in that sense that, 
you know, you like you said, that was the end game for Johnny and Joey, uh, you know, and how you define punk rock and what you think the parameters of, you know, punk rock should should exist in was kind of defined by the Ramones career. Um, that if you look at the Ramones as far as their peers, uh, you know, New York Dolls, Kiss came out of that same scene, you know, uh, a lot of those bands went on to become these megalodon like arena acts. Some of them didn't, some yep. of them did. Uh, do you think yep. the way that you feel, the way that you were just talking about punk rock is were the Ramones kind of a self-defining thing in that regard? The, the cool thing about the Ramones, you know, the, 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 the only thing I could say to that is that, is that the Ramones stand alone. They are not comparable to anybody else. They are not, you know, you can't, like, they have no peers. <laughs> I, and, and I hate, and I'm not talking about the band as a band member. I'm talking about the band as a total fan right now. There's nobody, except for maybe like Motorhead or ACDC, bands that existed completely, their scenes are completely unto themselves. There is no, they didn't need to be connected to a larger scene. They didn't need to be part of a movement. They really were themselves. You know what I mean? Really, really were them, stood alone. That, you know, with that being said, uh, you know, I'm not, I I don't dislike them for, for wanting commercial success. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think that's a detriment to them or anybody else or, or anybody else for that matter. Green Day, Rancid, you know, all those punk rock bands that blew up big time in the 90s came, you know, in the 90s and into the 2000s. God bless them. They deserved everything that they got because they worked hard. You know what I mean? And that was their goal. That's Their goal was to bring punk rock to the masses. You know what I mean? That's not my goal. That's that's not my goal. You know what I mean? My goal is to get, is to is to kick off something you do the youth through the kids. That's my goal. That's where I like to be. I don't, I, I'm not necessarily a big, you know, you know, a big time guy. That's not what I am. I'm like I said before, I'm a grunt. I'm, I, I like to be the guy doing the work that nobody else likes to do, doing the stuff that nobody else wants to do. People, I, I know <laughs> I played with guys in this business who hate and their, their dream is to get out of those, you know, 50 to 250 to 500 kid rooms. Their dream is to get out of that as soon as they possibly can so they can move to the bigger room. You know what I mean? That's that's it. I live in those places. Those are the places that I live in. Those are the places that I love to play. I, I The last U.S. tour I did, I did shows to 30 kids on a Wednesday night in in, in Ohio. You know what I mean? The, the, I don't like those shows any less than I, the ones I just did in Australia. I... I just love to, I, one, I love to play. I, I really like what I'm doing. I enjoy it to death. And the fact that I, I'm still doing music at my age and that people still want to come to see me alone is, is a reward. Hmm. My wife don't necessarily like it when I come home from a tour and there's no money to get paid. But <laughs> that's, you know, that, that's part, that's part of, of where I'm at, that's part of what I do. And that's, I can live with that. I can deal with that. Right. So what was I can the, totally deal with that. What was the last show you went to that just fucking blew your mind? That was just badass. I went to see the. I just went to see the Mean Jeans out here in Brooklyn. I saw the Mean Jeans with Kepi Gooley, and they were unbelievable. 
just totally blew me away. I, and I'm, I'm not easily impressed at this point because at 50 years old, I've seen a lot of shows. Mm. However, I'm not jaded. I'm not jaded. If I go, if I go to a show and the band is good, I have no problem going up to them afterwards and going, holy shit, thanks a lot. That was an awesome show. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not the kind of guy who I stop listening to new bands or stop looking for new music. I'm always looking, but it's, for me, it's been harder and harder to find music that I like. And that's partially the age thing, and that's something that you can't avoid. You know, the, the bands that I like from when I was a kid, I like because of where I was in my, in my, um, you know, in the process of maturation, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> the stuff you hear when you're an angry teenager is the stuff that you cling to for the rest of your life because right. you have so many memories attached to it. You know what I mean? I put on the first Ramones record. First time I ever kissed a girl was to a Ramones record. You know, first time I ever was alone with a girl in her room was to the Ramones record. Ramones record. First time I, I you know, I ever drank a beer or whatever was probably to something like Black Sabbath. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, but my, my high school years were heavily tied to the first two Iron Maiden records. You know, the, the stuff that you hear when you're in that process of kind of understanding, you know, who you are, where you are in the world, what the world is about, that music you cling to for the rest of your life. It gets harder as you get older to find music that means that much to you because, you know, once, you, once you're an adult and you're, you know, locked into your life and everything, you, you know, you, you just kind of don't relate to everything the same way, right. you know, well, I think, once you're an adult. I think when you, have, when you have bands that you really like, you, you almost assign events of your life to those bands. You know, yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Mi the Misfits are that way for me. You know, I have a Misfits tattoo. It was the first tattoo I ever got, you know, and I always yeah. think, I always think <laughs> of, you know, I always think of that. Misfits are a good one. Yeah. Which I saw, I was, I was uh, checking out your Facebook the other day. I saw uh, your son was, um, it looked like he was listening to Collection 2. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. So from the, yeah. with the kids, you know, do the, do the kids understand that dad is, you know, punk rock icon kind of guy, or is it just right. that's dad, whatever? Yeah, my, uh, <clears throat> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to preface that with um, um, the first time my kids ever saw me play was the, uh, the guys from Pearl Jam got in touch with me and asked me to come up on stage and do a song with them at Madison's excuse me, Madison Square Garden. So the first time my kids ever saw me play was on stage at Madison Square Garden. So that being said, you know, my daughter just thinks I'm the most uncool person on the earth. And my my son, who is the exact opposite, thank God, um, uh, still, you know, it's even though he's impressed with, you know, everything I've done and whatnot, he still he has that same drive that I did to, to kind of break out and go and do something on his own creatively. He's sure. really into writing and, and, uh, and whatnot, and, you know, huge music fan, but, um, not necessarily, uh, not necessarily driven to be a famous rock star or anything. Right. I think, you know, for sure he'd rather be a, a famous writer, or, you know, write, uh, books and movies and whatnot. But he's a lot more pragmatic than I was, and he is—he's uh, going to college for culinary arts. So. Oh, nice. Okay. 
So as as a dad, as a dad, you know, do do you ever find yourself going, you know, I learned this from, you know, X person and I really want you to not make the same mistake I did. You know, do you do you find yourself saying things to to your three kids that maybe Johnny told you, you know, or or Joey passed Absolutely. on to you? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's 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 a very 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 Two people that I, I really learned a lot from, actually. Um, um, you know, and that song on, on my last record, uh, Ray Conquista, um, you know, I, I, uh, the uh, song Three Angels on mm-hmm. there really explains a lot about that and, you know, what I learned from those guys. And, uh, and I absolutely, you know, any knowledge that you pick up in your life, as a parent, I, I really sincerely believe most of your, most of your, your time is spent trying to keep your kids from making the mistakes that you made or, or at least trying to teach them the lessons that you learned. And, um, and you know, some of that absolutely comes directly from my own experience in, 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 uh, in music and, and, and from directly from Johnny and Joey. And, and, you know, that's, uh, that's a, uh, it's a pretty neat thing having been a fan for so long to, you know, to go going from that fan thing to actually trying to pass lessons on to my kids right. that I learned from those guys. It's it's a pretty surreal type of situation uh, when I think about it. But um, yeah, I mean, any any knowledge that I have, I try to pass on to my kids, and I try to do it at the right times. I try not to sit them down and go, "Okay, today's lesson is going to be well, I, you know." <laughs> when situations come up, I. I you know, I try to address them and and do it that way rather than try to sit them down and overload them with, you know, stuff that at that moment they would be like, why the hell are you telling me this now, you know? <laughs> is it hard Is it hard for you and your wife to go just let them be, just let them figure it out on their own? You know, because you, you walk a fine line. It's not you know? so hard for me. Not so much for me. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of... Um, of uh, letting, you know, trying to let them learn on their own, trying to let them make their own mistakes and do their own thing and find out what works for them and what doesn't. I'm a big fan of that because I was um, I was allowed to do that as a kid, either by either by design or default. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if my parents actually understood that concept or if they just were like, you know, <laughs> not paying attention. But, uh, but, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that because I think, you know, without, without that ability to fail and learn on your own, you know, you, you really never learn, learn from somebody telling you don't do that. The more your parents tell you not to do something, the more driven you are to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's why I'm really a, a big believer in, Hey, you know, here's the rules. They shouldn't break them. If you do, you'll find out why. And I, I, I try to give them that, try to give them that space to, to fail on their own, to crash on their own. Right. But, you know, at the same time, I don't want to see them get beat up and hurt all the time. But, you know, unfortunately, pain and suffering is, is a major part of life, you know, and, and the, the what causes that pain and suffering and, and what, what causes the happiness, the better off you are. <clears throat> nice. Let's talk about the new record. 
last yeah. last chance to dance. Um, you know, when I was when I was corresponding with uh, your people to set you know all this stuff up, you know, I'd been listening to this album for a while previous to that, and um, I really really like it. There's a um, I feel from a from a songwriting and just from a and like an ex- actual execution standpoint, your stuff has a it kind of has a Paul McCartney vibe to me that, um, you know, Paul McCartney is one of those guys that like, he's kind of like Dick Clark. He's, he's going to, he's kind of forever young. You know, he's, he always has kind of a bounce in his step and, you know, he's always feeling good. And I look at your music in the same kind of way. Um, and it might be just me bookmarking it with my life that when I listen to CJ Ramon's music, I think of being a teenager again you know, and maybe the first time I heard Mondo Bizarro or Adios Amigos, you know, that sort of thing. It brings back those memories. But when I listen to this new album, I hear that youthfulness in it. But then at the same time, there's a song on there called Carry Me Away that just just blows me away. You know, you're you're coming from from a lyrical standpoint, you're drawing from a lot of different things. You know, is it in in that regard artistically is it easy do you just kind of open the gates and it all comes out or is it i you know i, I want to write a song like this you know i want to i'm that song in particular you know i've heard other songwriters talk about you know the songs that come into your head that have written themselves and and you put the pen to paper and my god there they are with the melody line and everything carry me away was one of those songs um and even sometimes when you when you think that's not happening, um, it actually is happening. So w- with Carry Me Away, what happened was I went, um, I have a, um, I have a particularly strong drive to go on long motorcycle trips. And um, a couple of years back, I, I just decided I was going to ride up to Nova Scotia and and then ride around up in in uh, northeastern Canada for a little while, and uh, and so that's what I did. I I got on my bike and I rode up the east coast, up to St. John's, and took the uh, up at Canada to St. John's, and took the ferry across to Nova Scotia. And um, while I was riding on the Acadian shore, um, I thought to myself, "Man, I, I have to write a song about this place somehow. I have to write a song about this place." And so I had intended to sit down and write this song. And um, at one point, I had to stop and have some work done on my bike. And um, we stopped in this little town called Pubnico. And uh, I was just reading a little bit about the history of the town from some this yellowed little piece of paper that was up on a wall um, in the in the gas station. And um, and the song came out. In its entirety, um, I just picked up my phone and I went to voice. Uh, you, you can record little voice messages on there, and and I I hit record, and the lyrics, the melody, all of it came out. But it came out, believe it or not, as a reggae song. <laughs> it came out with a total reggae feel to it, and um, I even kind of like spoke the bass line into into uh, into the microphone and and the whole thing. And, um, so I, I, I put it down on my phone, uh, just, you know, continued on and finished out that trip. And I ended up going over to, um, New Brun- I did, uh, New Brunswick and I did, uh, went all the way up to Northern Quebec and all the way back down to Southern Quebec. I was out for a couple of weeks and I came home 
and um, totally forgot about the song. <laughs> I actually had written, um, I think it was the other song I wrote on that trip was uh, Last Chance to Dance. That was another one that came out. You know, when I'm riding and my mind is like totally open and I'm on, you know, back road somewhere and it's there's nothing going on and my mind starts to drift, I find that... I know a lot of people say like the like they create art or when they create music, it's your subconscious and your and your your subconscious bridging into your conscious. Hmm. It's all this stuff from your subconscious that kind of makes its way into your consciousness without you actually knowing it. And I think that's why it happens for me when I'm riding. Um, but uh, I came home and, and and one day I said, I think I have a couple of songs. When I started you know, compiling songs for the record. I was like, yeah. And, uh, and when I, when I, when I sat down to, and listened to carry me away, I, I do most of my right, you know, my actual arrangements and stuff on an acoustic guitar. Cause if it sounds good on acoustic, I know it'll sound good electric. Sure. So, um, I sat down and that song just kind of, the whole reggae thing was gone the way it was. So I picked up the guitar and I played it the whole intro and everything. And, and it just came out like that. It just came out as that song. So that's one of those magical songs. Three Angels was the same thing. Three mm-hmm. Angels, but I, I dropped my daughter off from school and was driving home, and all of a sudden I, I was humming this melody, and I was like, "Where the hell is that from?" And and the lyrics just started coming out, and they literally just flowed out. I pulled over, and I I had a receipt on the in the console and I grabbed my daughter's crayon off the floor in the back seat <laughs> and I, I wrote them out as quickly as I possibly could because I was afraid I was going to forget them. So the, that is a, that's like a real thing and I swear it's it, it's got to be some little weird thing where you're subconscious. I, I've heard that theory before and I, I subscribe to that absolutely. But um, those are the songs that come out the best. But then there are songs like... um like Mr. Kalashnikov, where it's, I have something in mind that I want to say, and, and I want to make a point of saying it as directly as I possibly can. But even those lyrics, I don't, I, when I write lyrics, very rarely do I sit down and suffer over them and what the word that rhymes with that. Very rarely does that happen to me. Pretty much when I sit down to write lyrics, I've been thinking about the, the subject matter for a little while, and it, it really does just kind of flow, which is, beautiful because i know guys that they suffer over every word <laughs> they put down on paper and it goes through 300 rewrites before the final copy is ever made i'm just really happy that i've never been one of those guys and i mean those are you know guys that are like the real artist types who really really you know they craft their songs to a degree that's like beyond and it's beyond my abilities for sure but i'm i'm much more the you know I have something to say, I want to say it, and it comes out pretty directly. So, Grunt is like that too. Grunt, you know, totally inspired by, um, you, you know, not just by my own my own um, experiences and, and my own mindset, but there are guys that I know who are exactly, who think, and they're not even musicians, but who think and approach things in exactly the way that I do. So that you're t- you're talking about the creative process essentially. Um, in right. your, in your King Cobra short film for, uh, Reconquista, when it had came out, the making of the album, um, there's yep. a little, there's a little snippet in there where you're, you're talking about, uh, you, at some point you learned from Joey that lyrically every word needs to have 
uh, I think you said some punch to it. Never, never yeah. wait, never waste. That's a- his word. That's Joey's words. Every song's got to have a punch. Every word's got to have a punch. Don't waste any words. Right. So from from a creative standpoint, and you've spoken very highly, you know, in in the press and interviews and you know, and things I've read about you, that Joey was in tune kind of with the creative process of songwriting and making music. Does that, you know, the things you learned in in your seven years in the Ramones, does that still carry over to today? You know, do you write a song like Till the End or Long Way to Go or Going Home or Low on Ammo with that same sign of, same kind of stuff in mind? Yeah, um, for the most part. But there's some things that I some there's some songs that I really don't suffer over. There's there's some songs that are just so classic sounding to me and just so. You know, I say them very matter-of-factly. A song like Going Home um, um, it, it is definitely not a song I suffered over at all when I wrote either musically or lyrically. It was um, it was an idea that I had, and I had a very specific, um, I, I guess it's like classic song idea in mind. And I literally wrote on that was like a just banged-out type song. Um, and you know, for me, I, I'm sure some people would consider it filler or, or say that it's kind of a secondary song or whatever, but that song was as important to me as every other song on the record, because I really felt like I achieved what I wanted to achieve when, when I, when I wrote that song. And that was for a real classic rock and roll style song. Mm. And, um, and that, uh, believe it or not, that song is really one of my favorites on the record. And I'm sure that you would be hard pressed to find to find anybody else that would that would say that. But I really love the the um, the kind of innocence on that song and the and the real root sound to it and the fact that that um, that Billy Zoom played played mm. the solo on it is just you know I, I feel like I really captured something in that song. You know what I mean? With especially with Billy on guitar. You know what I mean? There's there's something uh, very, like I said, innocent and roots about that song that I really, really enjoy and I really love. I listen to Ray Conquista and and I don't hear a weak spot in it. That um, uh, now I know uh, I, there's a little weakness to the the production on it. I think that song could have been produced a little bit better. It sounds kind of demoish. But as as far as the song goes, and that song, believe it or not, a, a good portion of it was written in the studio. I went into the studio with that song just as an idea, um, and that song kind of flowered into that that real pretty um, little ballad that it is. Yeah. But uh, well, kind of melancholy. But um, but re- realistically, I don't think there's a weak song on that record, including the new record. You know, that's. That's that's one of the beautiful things about about how I how I did both the records is that I didn't Ray Conquista I learned a big lesson. There were three songs I didn't put on it because I felt they were too heavy and they didn't really um, they kind of made the record uh, not lack continuity and continuity was something that I thought was really important um, and you know a definite direction and continuity I thought was really important. But those three songs, of course, made it up onto uh, YouTube, and I got so many, <laughs> I got so many negative emails from people like, "Why did you cut these songs?" I I cut the the, the title track from Ray Conquista, 
And, you know, I said to everybody, I just thought they were too heavy. I thought they, you know, they just sounded, they didn't sound like the same band even. And, um, and I, I learned the lesson that if it's a good song, if I write it and it's a good song, it goes on the record. Style be damned and, and continuity be damned. If it's a good song, it goes on the record. And that's what I did with, with the new record. And that's how songs like, you know, Mr. Kalashnikov and Grunt made it on, right. or even Clusterfuck. I mean, you know, Clusterfuck is a total like 80s hardcore sounding song, but it's, it, you know, when we listen back to it, I I was like, this is a great song. It's going on the record. I want to talk about You Own Me. How does it strike with the misses at home? <laughs> she, it's, she it, well, it it's, the, it's funny that I asked because... She first heard it. <laughs> <laughs> when she first heard it, she thought it was like I was saying that to her. You right. know, like... You know what I mean? But she got the, so she got the message backwards. And then when she realized what I was actually saying, she was not real happy about it. But the, you know, I, I tried to, it's like one of the curses of, of writing songs and putting them out, putting them out is that every, any girl that you're with at the time thinks that you wrote the, every, any song that has to do with love or bad relationships or whatever has to do with her. Right. And I, I, I always have to plead my case to her. I'm like, you know, you know, I don't think that you understand. Like when I write a song, it's not always about a personal experience. Right. Most times it is, but sometimes I, you know, I just come up with a story in my head. So, you know, a lot of times it'll just be a story. I'll, I'll, I'll go to the, you know, I'll be out at the mall and I'll see a guy and a girl having an argument or a fight. And it, it just, I, I create this whole story about this one little, you know, one little scene that I see and I create a whole story around it. And sometimes that becomes a song, um, you know, but other times I, it's, it's not, it, it is about, you know, something directly, you know, that, that, um, I've been through and, uh, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't know one way or the other because I don't, you know, I don't feel the lyrics that I'm writing any less than I do, it, you know, whether it's somebody else or, or it's about my own personal experience. Right. So I, I always tell him, save judgment before you, <laughs> before you, uh, <laughs> rip me new one over some lyrics, you know, I, I give me a chance to explain. And, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, the way I, I write them a lot, most times is you wouldn't be able to tell one way or the other. And and I like there to be a little ambiguity so that people can take the song on and make it their own. You know, when somebody hears a song, You Own Me, um, you know, I want them to be able to listen to it without knowing the backstory so that they can relate it to their own life in whatever way they want to. You know what I mean? So they, they can have ownership on the song because I always felt when I was a kid... I, I always felt like any song I, any song I listened to that I related to, they must have wrote that about me, or they must have been through the same situation that I was through right. for them to be able to write lyrics that relate so closely to something that I've experienced. And that's what you want, you know what I mean? Well, that's what I want anyway as a songwriter. You know, I want I want the fans to you know get personal with the songs. And mm -hmm. but, but then there's people. There's one guy that I, I talk to on Facebook that. He calls me on my lyrics sometimes, and he knows exactly what I wrote about. Uh, and I, I say to him, I'm like, Jesus, dude, it's like, I, I know I've never said that in the press. 
it's like some kind of psychic link, you know? So, (laughs) and it's nice to have that experience too with, with fans who come up and they go, man, I know exactly what you meant when you, when you wrote, you know, that line just, it related to this thing that I went through and, and that's always good too. To me, ambiguity I think really helps. To to me, that song comes across as you got me wrapped around your finger in in the best kind of way. You know that's right. the, you know that that's why that's yep. why we're married. You know what I mean? So yep. I think it's I to me it's a it's a ro- it's a romantic. It's a, much much more pessimistic than you are. Right. <laughs> it's a, well, it has to me it has it has a it has a real romantic notion to it, and you don't. It's it's almost like finding a pearl, you know what I mean? You don't yeah. I don't feel like you get that in punk rock <clears throat> nearly as much as what you would like to have it. So when when yeah. you, when you do find it, it's you know, it's like Gollum would say it's a precious thing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I I appreciate that. Thank you. That's I think it's it's a good song, man. Well, you know, that's 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 another thing. You I I always hope that people will look a little bit deeper um, it's just like the song on on the on my record bad you know the bad chopper record um um you know there's a song on there called ain't no criminal right and that's the lyric i i, I ain't no criminal i say what i want i do what i please nothing subliminal and the whole thing the point that it's a double negative and the thing that i was trying to get across in the song was because i say what i want and i say what i feel it, these days, I'm a criminal for for saying that. You know what I mean? People, you know, will attack you for for speaking your mind and saying what you want if mm-hmm. what you're say what you're saying does not go along with what the party line is. You know, but very few people ever picked up on that. In fact, even my my wife, who is college educated, highly intelligent, uh, when I mentioned it to her, she was like, "I got that. I, I understood that." I was like, "Thank God," <laughs> you know, because. <laughs> I think people kind of took it on like, you know, they took it on as more like a thug anthem than they did like, a, holy shit, you, you all better pay attention to what's going on because we're, we're in some strange waters right now politically, you know? Let's talk about, I, but, um, that's, that's a good segue. Yeah. That's really, really good segue. Um, uh, right. From a socio-political standpoint, let's talk about Scattergun and Mr. Kalashnikov. Um, okay. Uh, Scattergun on uh, Adios Amigos, the last Ramones record, and Mr. Kalashnikov on Last Chance to Dance, the most recent one, um, both what I would call uh, gun enthusiast anthems, um, <laughs> where, uh, you know, <clears throat> where 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 are you at? Is it, is it coming from the heart? Is it, you know, I'm saying, you know, I'm, I'm an avid hunter or I'm an I'm an avid, um, you know, uh, states rights kind of guy where i feel like people should be able to protect themselves where where are you coming where are you coming from on that okay so um when i wrote scattergun um <laughs> i grew up first off i gotta say i grew up i grew up around guns i mean i think everybody probably knows that about me by now you know i i hunted when i was a kid with my dad right. and uh you know you know, went through all the safety courses and was always taught respect, you know, for a gun. I, I was never a, uh, you know, I was, I, I never carried a, a gun on me. I was never like a, you know, like a gun guy like that. Um, and you know, I was, everybody knows that I, I was uh, in the Marines for a short period of time before I got into the Ramones. Right. Um, so, you know, guns to me, the way I was raised were a, a tool. 
they were not, it wasn't some, I wasn't brought up on, 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 on video games and stuff like that. So there was never any big, Ooh, guns are so cool. Or, Oh, I got to have the latest gun gear and all that stuff. You know, all that kind of stuff. I, I, I find kind of amusing, but, um, it, it was just really guns were always part of my life. And I wrote the song scattergun <clears throat> at one particular time. Um, I did not live in a, a great neighborhood, and I always kept a gun. Um, you know, my shot. I always kept a shotgun for home protection, um, which I don't feel is like, you know, so such a big, you know, uh, dramatic thing. You know, it's you keep a gun in your house for protection. That's I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think you know, in our country, you have the right to do that, and I think you know, it's, it's everyone's own you know, personal opinion on whether or not they, they want to keep a gun in the house. But the whole anti-gun thing that, that started to happen in the last couple of years kind of has forced everybody to kind of choose sides <laughs> on, on where they actually are on the, on the gun rights thing. And in general, I think politics has really become like, you're for us or you're against us. Sure. And everyone's like, well, I'm this and I'm that. And everyone stands up with their fist in the air and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it, to the point of ridiculousness, like they've, they've attempted to make politics the new religion in the United States. Hmm. And everyone's kind of getting caught up in this big wave where if you're not, you know, absolutely hardcore behind everything that... I am, and you're my enemy. So it turned into this whole big thing. I wrote the song, Mr. Kalashnikov, because I own a couple of <laughs> pieces of his handiwork. <laughs> and I am right. not out, you know, marching in the streets, you know, screaming about gun rights and all that stuff. I just quietly exercise my right to do what's guaranteed me in the Constitution. Right. That's it. That's it. That's my big statement. The the song Mr. Kalashnikov really is poking a finger in the eye of all the people who have made such an unbelievably ridiculous big deal over the fact that I would want to own a gun. When it, it's my constitutional right to. You know what I mean? That's my right. That's not, to me, that's not ever questionable. Nobody should ever have the right to, to, to ask me anything related to it, why I own it or anything else. Why I own it is because it's my constitutional right to. Right. There's nothing to argue about there. There's nothing to scream about there. I'm not, I'm not criminal. I'm not, uh, mentally unstable. I'm law abiding. I'm, I live a, a pretty quiet life. I own chickens and grow vegetables and have children. You know what I mean? Owning a gun is not what defines my life. You know what I mean? It's just a right. It's a constitutional right. And and chances are, had there not been such a big deal made um, about gun ownership in the states, you wouldn't have the problem that you you wouldn't have the problems that you have now. But as soon as somebody steps up and starts saying that, hey, you are not guaranteed that right. That was a misreading of the Constitution. You're not guaranteed the right to own a gun. 
that's when I was like, whoop, <laughs> hold on, let's put the brakes on here. It's it's time to, uh, you know, it's time to have a, a discussion on this because, you know, uh, reinterpreting the language of the Constitution and all that stuff and whatever legal precedence they feel that they've, they've set with the, the last couple of, um, you know, in New York we have the SAFE Act where they limited magazines and changed a, a whole bunch of things and just really just served to make it more confusing. Um, regardless of all of that, I, I mean, my position is is that it's guaranteed me in the con- Constitution. It's been on the books from the get-go, from the beginning. Any challenge to that is, you know, to me, is a challenge to a constitutional right, and and that's where I draw the line. Right. And I know there's a lot of people who are like, well, those laws are written a long time ago, and blah, 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 and this and that. I always said, I'm willing to hand in my guns, but I'll be the last one to hand in my guns. Because as long as, as, long as there's somebody else out there with guns, whose intentions I have no idea about, I want to have one. We live in a, our... The, the, the culture in our country is a gun culture. Our country was born by the gun. That is our our entire history early on is completely dominated by the gun, good and bad. Mm-hmm. And that is just a, it's an inarguable fact. It's an inarguable fact. And I'm not saying that guns should forevermore be, you know, in existence. Hopefully someday there will be a, 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 a period of time where they won't be necessary. But in my opinion, <laughs> that day will never come. Because as long as you have something that somebody else will want, you're always going to have to worry about it. You know what I mean? You're always going to have to worry about it. And whether it's guns or knives or swords or bows and arrows or whatever, there's always going to be somebody looking to come and take what's yours. Always, always, always. And maybe not on a personal level, but on a big level. Right. It'll always be that way. That song was kind of like me flying the flag. Hey, look, here's the deal. I am I am 100% pro-gun ownership. I make no excuses or qualms about it. I'm, I'm not trying to ride the fence on it or anything else. I am 100% pro-gun and, and it, it's not necessarily for all the crazy stuff that you see that's out there or whatever, but if I want to go hunting, if I want to take my boy hunting, if I want to have a gun in my house for, for home, uh, for, to, you know, to protect myself and my family, those are all already my guaranteed rights. Hmm. Those are all already my guaranteed <clears throat> rights. And there is nothing going on right now happening that warrants me changing that or losing those rights. Absolutely nothing. I understand, you know, the, you know, the gun violence and everything else, but there's a whole lot about um, gun violence statistics that people are completely ignorant to, and if they understood it, understood it, they would see why there's such a big pushback against it by the average guy. I'm not, you know, the the industry stuff, the NRA, you know, they, there's all types of arguments against why they're doing it, but for the average guy, the average Joe. There are big, big, big arguments um, for, for us to, to for us to say, hey, listen, you know, take your political angles and, and all that other stuff and, and go somewhere else. You want to live in a gun-free society? Move to Australia. Move to move to Europe. Go move somewhere where they where they don't have guns and and, and guaranteed they have less gun violence, but it's not completely gone. 
it's not completely gone. Because you know who still has guns there? Criminals. Mm. <laughs> Go talk to the people in France. Wasn't not one of them had a chance to survive that. You know why? Because they don't have the right to carry a gun. You know what I mean? That's And that's just a matter-of-fact argument right there. That's just a strict matter-of-fact argument. At least here, if something like that happens in a mall, at least there's a chance that somebody in there is is some responsible, law-abiding guy who has a carry permit who will be there to save the day. You know what I mean? At right. least there's a chance of it. When you live in a society where people don't have the right to carry a gun, in the world that we, we live in now with all the type, of, the type of violence that's going on now, at least there's a chance. If you're out with your son or your daughter at the mall, and some guys run in with a pair of AKs who their only goal is to inflict as many casualties as they can. At least there's a chance there's somebody there who's got a carry permit that, that, you know, that can neutralize the situation or at least give you a chance to get out. Right. You know, and if you don't want to be that person, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't deny the rights of somebody else who's willing to take that chance. Somebody else who's willing to invest the time and money into taking the state courses and learning how to shoot properly and spending the money on the on the on the gun and the ammo and everything else, you know, that's that's my view of it. That's my view of it. And dude, I know there's a lot of great arguments on the other side, but that's I like I said, I grew up with them. Never had an incident. Always been safe. Never any reason for me not to own a gun None. yeah i you know i come from i come from the midwest my dad was a hunter you know we he always had he carried this big fat ass handgun for the longest time it was the loudest fucking thing right. i've ever heard in my life um dad hunted all the time and to me that sounds like a very uh for lack of a better term a moderate way of looking at things where it's not polarized to one extreme or the other where it's you're either black or you're white it's one way or the other you're either in you're either out um to me that sounds that's how i've seen it growing up as a kid i don't carry a gun i don't really want one but right i mean it is what it is i feel like if you yeah. if you want to have one have one just don't shoot me you know what i mean that's yeah. the, that's end of the story i don't you feel have like a right it, to carry a gun but i have a right to live yeah yeah that's yeah. the whole yeah, that's the whole thing. Yeah, and I think it should be to me should be pretty cut and dry. Uh, that's that's where I come from. It's funny that you kind of articulated in that way because <laughs> when you when you look at the Ramones, you, to me the Ramones represents a very uniquely American kind of thing. Only in America would a band like the Ramones happen, in in my opinion. Um, at least at yeah. the begin at the beginning, you have Johnny who obviously had conservative leanings and you have Joey who obviously had liberal leanings, you know, and right. there there's Tommy or Marky or Didi or who, or Richie or whoever they're kind of in the middle of everything. Do you feel like in the, in that environment, did you ever felt like, man, these guys are entirely too polarized on one side or the other? How is it possible that we're going to be able to ride in a van with each other for 22 years and make this work? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it was, I, it, it's kind of maddening. I am, I, I definitely say I am solidly moderate in the middle, totally 100%. You know, I can, I can say I'm, I'm a registered independent. Okay. That should, that should speak for itself. But the, um, uh, and I have a real, um, disdain for, any type of extreme left or extreme right. I really, 
I, I, it's to me, it's so not, so not American for some reason. I just feel like it's so not American to be that way, you know? And unfortunately today, that's, that's the big thing. Everybody's extreme. Everybody's either extreme, right? Or extreme. Everybody, at least, you know, making noise anyway. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was brutal. It was brutal sometimes. It was, but it, it's just like, you know, it, it, I, this is what I always tell everybody. Everyone grew, grows up in a house where there's always one difficult person in the family. Always one difficult person. Never fails. There's always someone who is difficult. And that's just how it was. You know, it, you know riding in the van was like riding in the, in, the, in the van with your parents when they were in a bad mood. You know what I mean? <laughs> Except that they just ignored each other. They didn't fight. Right. They didn't even argue. Do you do you think there they just ignored each other? Do you think there ever would have came a time when, uh, you know, Joey would have let the the Linda thing go with Johnny? Do you, no. Do you, no. 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 Even because even if Joey did, Johnny wouldn't have. And um, when when Joey was dying, um, uh, and Johnny spoke about this too in the documentary. You know, there was I think there was a point where. Uh, um, there was an opportunity for them to talk and, and Johnny still refused. Johnny just, you know, he was like, Hey, listen, we didn't like each other. You know, there's no reason for me to pretend now because, you know, because he's dying or because maybe it was for him to go to the funeral or something or because he's dead. There's no reason for me to, to pretend, you know, that all of that stuff didn't mean anything. He's like, we didn't like each other. Mm-hmm. We never did from the beginning. So, and that's the way, that's the kind of guy Johnny was. He was, you know, he believed what he believed till the end, period, end of discussion. There was no changing his mind. He was, he was just that, you know, that type of guy. But, um, you know, was it, uh, it, it was, you know, it was difficult being in the van sometimes, but for the most part, it was just like being in a family, just like being in a family. I, I picture in my head, you know, I always think of that, um, the cover to Monty Melnick's uh, book, um, you know, the, the cartoon drawing. It's got all you guys on the cover of it. And I always kind of associate as Johnny as kind of like the angry dad, you know, Joey as the yeah. sympathetic mother, and then Marky's kind of like the, the, the drunk uncle that comes over sometimes. <laughs> and C, and CJ and Dee Dee are the kids, you know. Um, yeah. As far as like the internal kind of dynamic between you guys, you, you, did you feel like I gravitated towards this person or, you know, I, cause I've heard you say John, Johnny kind of almost in a, in a fatherly figure kind of way, you know, who, who did you gravitate towards in the band? You know, it's, um, my relationship with when I first got into the band, I was friends with Joey first. Johnny was my boss. Hmm. So Joey was more like my friend. Me and Joey went to shows together. We, um, I would go to his apartment. He'd let me stay over there. We'd watch TV together and, you know, try to write songs, whatever, you know. So my relationship with Joey was way more of, of, a, of a friend. Johnny was more or became more my mentor or my teacher. Right. And he uh, had gone to military school when he was a kid. And because I had just come out of the Marines, he kind of understood where my head was at. And he kind of used that. Um, 
he used that uh, approach with me, um, where he was very cut and dry and told me exactly what I should be doing, what I needed to do, and and it, it worked really well. And because of that, it made communicating with him a lot easier than with Joey. Joey, even though we were friends and hung out and everything, you know, Joey was very, um, just very, very strange dude, you know? <laughs> he was a strange dude. But he was ultra, ultra, ultra um, um, liberal. And I would, I would go to his place and there would be, you know, like some famous, you know, underground communist dude at his apartment who, and, you know, we'd sit there and the guy would talk for hours. I'd be falling asleep and Joey and, and like his Lower East Side crew would, um, always sit there just lapping it up, you know? And I, <laughs> there was one guy one time who was talking about the, um, Oh God! Well, I think he was talking about like the the war in Iraq, the first one, and um, and he was making all these like like I don't know like kind of blanket statements about you know our involvement over there and and about it being all about oil and just like uh, just like a lot of crazy stuff and like negative stuff about the military and whatnot. And I finally had to speak up and say something. <laughs> And it was just funny because everybody in the room just shot me the nastiest look. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, how dare you say anything like that, you know? But I was like, I don't care who you are. I, I question everything. I'm not going to sit there and listen to some guy who's a, who's a communist, first off, um, talk about, you know, the U.S. policy and the U.S. troops and why we're over there fighting a war and blah, blah, and this and that and not at least question them and, and ask them, you know, where do you get that information from? How are you backing that up? How could you possibly even know that? You know what I mean? And uh, <laughs> so sometimes it was difficult being uh, being uh, Joey's friend because it was, like I said, you know, just so far, his, his, his politically he was so far left of anywhere I ever was. Right. How severe, you know, there's his, his obsessive compulsive disorder is you know, documented, not extensively. Mm -hmm. Um, but in your experience, how, you know, how severe do you think it was? It interfered with his life on a daily basis. It would, he would, you know, made hard he, for him. he would ritualize like, on, like on a pretty routine basis. Absolutely. Yeah. Over everything too. Wow. I mean, getting out of the house, you know, uh, let's just, I can just tell you that it affected every part of his life. Hmm every part of his life. And I know, you know, other people have said, you know, made it hard to be around him or made it hard to be in a band with him or whatever. For what that guy dragged himself through and put himself through for the last couple of years that we were on tour, it never bothered me. And I, I used to be, I used to sleep in a room next to him a lot of times and he would open and close his door all night long or flick his light switch on and off all night long. I never went and said anything to him because I knew he was suffering over it as much as I was. I'm sure he didn't want to be up all night opening and closing his door. He would just, he would go through his number and he would lose track of his number and then he would have to start from the beginning. Mm. You know what I mean? And that's how the guy lived, you know? Right. He must have had a really high number and, and he would just, because that's a lot of time how obsessive, uh, OCD people are, they have a number that they have to count to 
They have to do something a certain amount of times, and if they lose track of it, they have to start from the beginning. Right, right. And, um, and yeah, I would hear him open and close his door, turning his lights on and off, turning the water on and off in his sink, stepping in and out of his doorway, just brutal. I can't imagine what it must be like to live with that. Right. Do you feel... I mean, the, the, the stress and anxiety it must cause you, you know, from one minute to the next, you, you, it's it's got to be brutal. Do you feel like kind of walking away from that, you know, you're, I mean, it's been a while, you know what I mean? Joey passed away, Johnny passed away. It's been, we're talking years at this point, you know, having yeah. some, having some distance between now and then, do you feel like is, is there anything you say, you know what? I wish I would have said that to Joey or I wished I would have done something differently. You know, do you have any of those kind of feelings? Uh, the only thing I, I really wish I would have got a chance to see him in the hospital when he was uh, when he was really ill. I did attempt to go see him, but I wasn't. My name wasn't on the list to be allowed to go in, so I, I couldn't go in. And the the last time I tried to go see him was actually the morning that he died. So I, I wish I would have got to see him in the hospital, but I did get to talk to him. And and um, <clears throat> you know, because of how close I was, you know, there's really nothing I never said to Joey that I wish I would have said to him. Right. You know, he knows he, he knows how I felt about him. Um, uh, and, and I really, uh, you know, I, w I was upset, like I said, that I didn't get to go to the hospital, but, but, um, but, you know, I, as far as saying anything that nah. Johnny, uh, was different. Johnny, two of the last people that Johnny requested to his house to see him was me and my manager, Gene Frawley, who was also Johnny's friend for years. He was Johnny's right hand guy. Um, when we were on the road, mm -hmm. um, and Johnny actually requested us to come up to the house, so, you know, he was literally on his deathbed. He died just, I think, a day or two after. So, and he said, you know, CJ, you know, thanks for everything. You did a great job. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, you know, uh, we appreciate everything that you did. And I said, you know, I, I just said thank you, Johnny, because that was really all I, all I needed to say. Right. That's all I wanted to say. I just wanted to thank him. You know, Johnny's the guy who picked me. He's the guy who uh, who chose me in the auditions. He said he knew I was the guy from the first time I came in. You were the first one in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why do you think Johnny? Why do you think Johnny was drawn to you? Probably because I was like a young Deedee, hmm. very um, kind of um, outgoing, and like I just wanted to do it. I just wanted to do something. Plus, I was just out of the Marines, so I still had a little bit of military bearing going on there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> See, I picture, I picture a 24 year old, you know, CJ Ramon, just a lot of piss and vinegar. Um, you know, cause I've, I've been in that position in my life too, you know, where you're just, you're, you're just unstoppable at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because I did not expect to get the audition, it just took away like that whole uncertainty and that whole nervousness. And I just went in very, you know, confidently and matter-of-factly and went in and introduced myself and shook his hand and said, you know, I'm a big fan and played and left. In fact, when, when I came home and got the phone call, when I got the message from my mom that Monty Melnick had called, I thought to myself, did I leave a cord at the studio or a strap at the studio or something? Like, that's how unexpected, that's how, I just had no expectation for it at all. None. And I think that, that having that state of mind when I walked in probably you know, probably helped me a lot. I want to talk about DD just a little bit because we've, we've talked a lot about John. We've talked a lot about Joe. Um, I want to touch base on DD. Um, I think from a, 
from a fan's perspective, you know, uh, sometimes the assumption was Dee Dee left the band, CJ's in, and, you know, that's that. There's just a really harsh kind of separation there. Right. You know, but you had a lot of contact with Dee Dee, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, you've, you've sang about him in Three Angels. You know, he's, he's, uh, him and Daniel Ray co-wrote some songs together that you ended up singing on. You know, yep. what, what's the conversation like in the studio when DD brings in a song with Daniel and DD bring in a song, say, we got this song called Main Man and we have Strength to Endure. Why don't we let CJ sing? You know, how does it, how does it go from D-Day, DD to CJ in that regard? Well, how it how it went was um, we would vote on the songs that were going to go on the record, and then everything that was going on the record, I would get tapes of. Dee Dee always um, gave me his tapes and uh, sent me his tapes through somebody else and put a little note in there. In fact, I I've got that saved. That's one of my prized possessions. But that's um um uh, that's generally how it went. So I would get all the tapes. I would figure out all the songs, all the guitar lines go to rehearsal, I would teach them the Johnny, and then I would have to sing all the songs because Joey didn't come to rehearsals. So when Joey started coming to rehearsals and, and would sing, it would, um, he would hear, you know, he would hear the tapes of me singing the songs, and then he kind of would say, ah, I think CJ sings this one better. Or sometimes Johnny would say, ah, let's let CJ sing that one. So Johnny and Joey pretty much decided on, on uh, on which ones I sang. Hmm. So did did you know? Did you ever have that moment where Dee Dee comes to you and says, it "Sounded awesome." Mm, did he ever tell me that? <laughs> he never really. Um. I mean, there were times when he said to me, "You know, you do, you're really doing great, CJ." You know, like he he would like compliment me or whatever. But um, you did a good job on that one. But like the, the like the. I played with Dee Dee in, um, in the remains for a little while. Right. I had a lot of contact with Dee Dee. Like, Dee Dee was definitely like a friend of mine. Like, we hung out and went out together. He was trying to find an apartment in Brooklyn. He called me up. I picked him up. We went and drove around, looked at apartments all day and stuff. I had lunch together, whatever. He, he was a cool guy, man. He really was. He was crazy, though. You know, at the last show, he was like, you know, I should punch you in your face and break your jaw. I heard you said you used to spit on me at the shows, and I tried to explain to him, Dee Dee, but I was trying to point of the story was that I was always in front of you. I was always there in front of you. But um, he was crazy, Dee Dee. You know, he definitely was. But um, one of the coolest things ever happened was, and this is the last time I, I saw him, was in New York. He was doing a corporate gig, and um, he asked me to come up on stage, play a show with him, and after the show... It, there was a moment where it was just me and him backstage, and he said, "You know, you know, CJ, you always really cool to me, and you always treated me with respect, and and you know, you're a really good guy. I think you're a really nice person. That's he was his the way he talked was great, right. and um, and it kind of took me back for a second because he wasn't usually like that. He usually wasn't like like I think that was Douglas. You know, I don't right. think that was Dee Dee. I think for for a little second there, he was Douglas, and 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 it was kind of cool to have like that that moment with him. And I think he was dead like a week later. Do you think Dee Dee knew? Was the last time I saw Dee Dee. Do you think he knew at that point? I don't know. You know, I've I've, I've thought about that a lot. Did you know? Because when I saw him at this gig, I was thinking to myself, "What the fuck is he doing here?" You know, I I just couldn't. I I just didn't. I I didn't see it as a as you know. 
where one of the greatest rock and roll songwriters of all time should be. You know, I, I just felt like, fuck, you know, he, he's not, this isn't, this isn't Didi. This ain't where he belongs, you know? And, um, and you know, like I, I wonder, you know, I've thought about it in my head. I wonder if he offed himself on purpose or, you know, or maybe he wasn't really, maybe if it wasn't per purposeful, but he was really just pushing himself. You know what I mean? Right. But it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, figure out without a note or something, you know, hmm. but he, uh, yeah, that was the last time I saw him. I want to end on kind of a higher note. Cool. Um, a little while back on Facebook, uh, there was a little boy named Milo Riley that had uh, written you a letter and you posted a, a picture of, you know, the actual envelope and he had drew you a picture on Facebook. Yep. And, you know, you had said, this is one of my favorite things right now. Um, now, I know that you may not want to describe, you know, or, or divulge what was in the letter or anything like that. And it's, you know, up to you what, how much you want to talk about it. But what's, uh, what's important about those, uh, to, to me, that's, that's one of those small things that amount to very, very big things personally. You know, what, what about that? What about that feels good? Uh, I think, uh, you know, I think at, at this point, um, in my life, like I, I did the whole, I was a boy scout leader and I was a, me and my wife had a girl scout troop, you know, for my son and my daughter. Um, I work with kids a lot. And the thing that I found is, is that what I realized and what I, you know, what I, what I think one of the things I've come to come to terms with is that one of the biggest ways I can, I, you know, try to help change the way things are. And I'm not a big fan of the way things are right now. I think we're off on some weird tangent right now in our, in our history. <laughs> I think we're not going in a, in a, in a particularly good direction, right. but you know, rather than, rather than sit around and do what a lot of people do, which is bitch and moan and complain about it and whatnot, I really try to um, reach out to kids as much as I possibly can because I realize with adults, um, it's it's hard to deliver a message that that's going to um, change their minds, make them see things differently, or, or 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 help them to change in a way that that that's positive. You know, pretty much when you're an adult, your opinions are your opinions, your life is what it is, and and you're just trying to survive on a daily basis. But with kids, if you can if you can change their perception even a little bit of of the way the world is or the way the world works or what's right and wrong or what's good and bad, if you could just give them a little bit of a positive influence because there's so much negativity that influences kids these days, and that's one thing that really, to me, is is troublesome. Is you know, media, entertainment, you know, video games, all that stuff loaded with violence. Just so much violence, so much sex. It's like, uh, like overkill across the board. And and that's not to say that you know, um, there was it didn't exist when I was a kid or you know or whatever. But it's just that not at this level and not in such a constant stream. So I try I try to use my interactions with kids to um to just to get them to understand that there are, uh, you know, other things and other ways and, and, and 
you know, other, just other ways of seeing things and of doing things that mean a lot more than instant gratification. Mm. And, you know, to, to, to fire off an email to somebody or send a text is one thing, but to sit down and take the time to handwrite a letter and actually, you know, write that person's name and answer their questions and, include something, you know, a guitar pick and a picture or, or something. I, I just hope that even though it's something very, very minor, very, very small, but I hope, you know, to me, the message there is, is, you know, always take the time to treat people like people. You know, I, my, I watch my kids, my daughter, especially sit across the room from her boyfriend and they text each other. <laughs> just, which is unbelievably <laughs> maddening to me. And while, you know, while, while it, you know, it definitely is funny, it, there is a, a, a disconnect in between them that I, I it just bothers me. It, it, it just, it just sticks in my head every time. Or when my, my son can't get in touch with his friend, he's trying to text his friend. I'm like, why don't you call him? And he's like, dad, come on. Like nobody calls anybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, so anyway, the, the message that I, you know the, that I, I hope that the, the kid gets is that is everybody's important. You know what I mean? Everybody's important. Everyone's feelings are important. Everyone's life is important. Should always take the time to treat people like people, like human mm-hmm. beings. That's a really, really um, important lesson to learn and to teach kids when they're young. Because now, like the way I see my kids are in school, they're just pushing everybody through, pushing everybody through, pushing everybody through. They're just trying to get them through and praise them for work that they don't do and be fair to everybody. It's crazy to me. I just, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand where, where this whole mindset came from. But the, the bottom line to it, you know, for, for me anyway, is that, you know, people are starting to forget how to treat each other like people, and, you know, and starting to forget, like, you know, it's important. What you say to somebody is important, that, you know, that, and and this ain't, I'm not trying, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to say we got to make the world, you know, you don't need to be a, a, you know, a world full of pussies. That's not what I'm, I'm trying to say here. But, you know, the, the, the whole fact of the matter is just to take that second to, to let that person know that you're listening and that you know, what, what they're saying is important. And that's, I, I hope that kid got some, some small part of that message. And if I, if I reach that kid, that's, that's awesome. You know what I mean? That's, that's really good. That's what I mean. You, you said you've been on my Facebook page. I answer every, every, um, message I get. I answer myself. There's nobody else that works my page for me. You know what I mean? There's, there's nobody, I don't have an assistant who goes, you know, who, who signs onto my Facebook account and, and fires off, you know, cute little answers to people. That's me. Much to my wife's chagrin. You know, on my, on my laptop three times a day, just keeping up with the messages that I get. You know, and that's, uh, that, that to me, it, to me, that's important <coughs> for me to let the fans know. You know, when people go, oh, you know, I, I can't believe you wrote back to me. I'm, I'm just a fan. That kills me to hear that. I'm like, just a fan. Without fans, <laughs> what would I be doing if I don't have fans? I, I'm not, I can't do what I do. You know what I mean? And uh, to, to me, it's, it's just unfortunate that people think of themselves in that way. You know, one thing, one thing I've learned from, uh, doing this podcast is that nine times out of ten, the people that you think are out of reach, art and uh 
the fa- the fact that I've stood here and talked to you for an hour and a half is uh <laughs> is, is testament to that. So yeah, cool. Yeah, that's awesome, CJ. Well, CJ, we're at, I think we're out of time, man. I can't right. I can't thank you enough for uh, coming on the show, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We live or die. What keeps us going is this fire inside, and I know.